Love talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Love talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Love talk with Laura. Welcome to the 35th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I am really excited to share this episode. It has been more than two years since I released a new episode, but I'm back to share interviews from a really special event that happened last month, August 2022. That was the second national conference on justice in geoscience. This conference was organized by three people, Dr. Benjamin Kiesling, Dr. Raquel Bryant, and Dr. Rachel Bernard. And if you've been a listener to the podcast in the past, you might recognize the names Raquel Bryant and Benjamin Kiesling because they were interviewed on episode 12 way back in 2018 when they were both still graduate students. Also back in 2018, Rachel Bernard and Emily Cooperdock published a paper in Nature Geosciences titled No Progress on Diversity in 40 Years. As the title illuminates, their research showed that while the percentage of white women in geosciences has increased over the last four decades, there has been no increase in the racial diversity of the earth sciences. The need for meaningful change is clear. Later that same year, Benjamin Kiesling went to a meeting of the OSTEM Club at UMass, a club for LGBTQ students in STEM fields. During the icebreaker, the president of the club, Phoebe Bisnoff, invited everyone to share a queer scientist from their discipline that they looked up to. When Benjamin realized he didn't have an answer, except for his friends and peers, he got to work doing research. He learned about Dr. Clyde Warhoftig, a field geologist with the United States Geological Survey, who came out in 1989 at the end of his career during his acceptance speech for a Distinguished Career Award at the Geological Society of America meeting. While looking online for clues about Dr. Warhoftig's life, Benjamin stumbled on a report from the first national conference on minority participation in earth science and mineral engineering. Looking at the report from the meeting that had taken place in 1972, Kiesling saw a familiar name, Dr. Randolph Bromery. Dr. Bromery had been a professor in the UMass Geosciences Department, as well as the first African-American chancellor of UMass, as well as president of the Geological Society of America. Bromery's accomplishments were vast, and his legacy lives on through numerous awards and fellowships aimed at celebrating and supporting minoritized scientists and students in geosciences and other fields. After reading through the 161-page report detailing the events of that meeting, Kiesling felt both awe and despair that such great minds had tried to tackle this problem, yet we still face similar conditions nearly five decades later. When he shared it with Raquel, she convinced him that it was not cause to despair, but to act. They reached out to Rachel, and together, the three wrote a grant proposal to the National Science Foundation, got the American Geophysical Union, the Geological Society of America, and many other major sponsors to support them in organizing a meeting on the 50th anniversary of the first national conference. Four years after the ideas for a second national conference began to percolate, these three early career scientists had made their vision reality. And so, from August 14th to 18th, hundreds of people gathered at the American Geophysical Union headquarters in Washington, D.C., with the shared goal of envisioning change for the next 50 years in geoscience. The conference had three themes. Archival, 
urgent, and imaginary. The schedule and program were familiar in some ways and unconventional in many. Each day began with a keynote speaker, and we then broke out into discussion groups, which we would return to twice each day for reflection. Sessions included workshops, reading discussions, and creative outlets. The final day of the conference ended with a jam session. Each day of the conference, I convinced somebody to let me ask them questions, and so now I invite you to join me for the next hour or so on a four-day tour of the second national conference on justice in geoscience. The conference began on a Sunday with an opening reception. COVID safety protocols included uploading vaccine cards ahead of time, daily temperature measurements, and daily rapid tests and N95 masks provided for everybody. This was my first in-person conference since the pandemic started, and I found these safety measures very comforting. These precautions also seem to have worked pretty well, as we were notified the second day that one person had tested positive and no other positive tests were reported. The opening reception buzzed with energy as people from different fields and career stages met each other and connected with old friends. The room was packed from the start of the reception until an hour past its official ending when the building finally closed. I cornered Raquel and Benjamin at the end of the evening to ask them for their reflections. We were tired but energized, and our conversation flowed. After a long day, I had forgotten the formalities of interview introductions, so we'll jump right into the conversation as I'm talking about the first time I saw Raquel and Benjamin give a talk together at the American Geophysical Union annual meeting in 2017, abbreviated as AGU. So when I was at AGU in December 2017 Mm -hmm. in New Orleans, and I had just started the PhD program at UMass mm. in September. So mm. I've known you a few months and I went to your talk. Oh yeah. That you gave together yeah. about how you had changed the seminar series at UMass. That feels like an early seed of what we're doing today. Mm. So yeah, maybe can you tell me about how this conference came into being? I think that 2017 example, one of the things that sticks out in my memory of that talk was the, like, the fact that we gave it together, I remember... That's not really something that people do at AGU. Like, give a talk where there are two people on stage and you kind of, like, pass the mic. And I had never seen that done. And I remember when we got the talk, like, accepted, Raquel was like, oh, we're just going to give this together. Like, we'll both go up on stage and we'll kind of, like, go back and forth. And I was like, oh, I've never seen that done, but okay, that sounds good. And when they called up Raquel to give the talk, I also came up. And I think one of the first things you said was like, oh, yeah, we're just going to give this together. And I remember the look on the faces of the people that were like sitting up there convening, just being a little bit like, what? Like, you can't. There's this, I think that's the, that's one of the tensions that this conference is also tapping into. That gut reaction of saying, what? You can't do that. But then also the realization that like, why not? Yeah, like actually, yeah, you can. And that sort of using that contrast to illuminate what are the possibilities that you might not even be thinking of, or that you've like blocked out as a possibility for no good reason, but just because that's what the status quo is. And so I think besides like that kernel of like us working together on something, also just that example of like how it was done in many ways precedes the conference. And then that was also the year where we like met Rachel and had lunch with her and got to free lunch. It's cool that that's resonating with you and you're having that flashback. Cause I think that 
there's a lot of ways that that is a moment that's like part of the archive of how this all came to pass. What are you most excited about coming up in the next few days? Okay, it's a two-part answer, I think. I know, I feel like I know what's going to happen in the next few days, and I don't know what's going to happen after. So I'm kind of most excited slash anxious excited, which we talked a lot today in the facilitator training. Anxious excited about, like, what's going to be after. I'm excited about just, like, how we're using the physical space of the HU building feels really, like, radical and like imaginary in a lot of ways and I that's what I'm just excited to see that physically play out because I know that for me what it means is like even when you see a space that's like built for something or it's intended for something there are other ways to use it and I hope that the attendees also kind of get that sense it's like a very like insurgent and urgent use of the physical space. It's like taking that map of the building and remapping something on top of it that is for a very different purpose, but also can be really effective. And that's, I'm just excited. I've been thinking about how that's gonna look for a long time and I'm really excited to like see it actually in practice. Um, I guess the, these like breakout groups that we've designed where like twice a day there's just gonna be these gatherings of like five six seven people all spread out throughout the building all talking about like what they're experiencing or writing down what they're experiencing um we don't have that kind of opportunity for like community and reflection built into a lot of the conferences that are like typical that we go to. I feel like the typical conference experience is one of just like you're running from like one thing to the next thing. And you just, if you ever have a time to reflect, it's just like afterwards. And so I'm excited to see how it can alter the experience of being at a conference when you literally build in time to just like sit back, reflect, talk and like write that down so it gets saved do you like our boxes did you see them can you tell me about the boxes oh we <laughs> had this vision of having like banker boxes and they're just like an archive if you made something and you feel like you're like other people need to see this that happens yeah. to me put it in the banker box yeah <laughs> so it's cool they're like on each floor there's like a slit cut out of the top so you can just like put stuff in it. I'm excited to see what comes of that. Like Raquel, everybody thought it was funny today when Raquel referred to it as like sedimentary. Mm -hmm. But we talked about this, like Raquel brought this up yesterday when we were talking to Bromery's grandson about, um, Justin, Justin, about preservation potential. And that's something we think about a lot, like in the geologic record that whatever you're looking at, is not only it, it, like it's a it's a record of what happened but it's incomplete because some things like don't get preserved and one of the ways to kind of like combat that is just to like make more things like the more things that you have the more likely things are to be preserved and so i think that like analogy to like sedimentary and sedimentation like accumulation 
it sort of is like we ha- we want people to just kind of be like hoarders here, like mm-hmm. say we want to save stuff and lean into lean into that because yeah, I don't know. That's like what we wish. That's what I also for myself. Like that's what I wish that I had from the first national conference. That's one of the things that kind of haunts me about it is just like how much that we will never know because of how much was like not preserved and like I've done my fair share of digging in archives to find like what does exist and it's just like so selectively preserved you just get these like little viewpoints little vantage points um i think the banker box just and the like virtual archive that's just like one of the ways that we're kind of trying to i guess combat that tendency for things of this nature to like not be preserved Can I ask you a question? Sure. Well, like, what are you excited about the next, like, three days? Oh, boy. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be, like, comprehensive, but just, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. No, I'm really excited. I've been reading Undrowned. Ugh, yeah. And it yeah. is a really wonderful book. Right. Um, you got it right there? Oh, nice. My copy's, like, falling apart because I read it. Okay. Mine's in an e-reader. Love so that. I do have it with me. One of my favorite, like, parts of Undrowned, also just because of who I am, my own obsessions, is when she talks about whales. Um, yeah, we talk, Raquel and I have talked about that, like, extensively. The fact that, like, whales are mammals. We, like, share a common ancestor not that far apart. We have a lot of, like, biomechanical things in common. But the difference is, like, they chose to go back to the ocean it was a long time ago we diverged like evolutionarily but oh it was antarctica's fault she's saying it was antarctica's fault do you not want the recording to catch (laughs) can you whisper louder no (laughs) i don't want to get scooped Oh. Right. All right. Okay. Let me know which parts of the interview are completely off the track. But yeah, anyway, so I'm just like, what was I going to say is that they chose to go back to the ocean and that is really like meaningful in a lot of ways. Like the ocean is, covers more of planet earth than land does. The ocean is responsible for so much of like the change in the landscape, like the spreading of the ocean and the rifting that like creates new land. And, um, I just feel like we have a lot to learn from animals like whales. I just wanted to say, um, I was really stressed about stuff like a year ago and I was just like doing this thing where I would Google search whatever weird combinations of things I wanted to, that was like, I could do that for 30 minutes and then I had to work because I was like, had to publish a paper or else no one would take me seriously. So everyone was telling me. So anyway. I was, like, searching things about gay whales, because I think I probably just wanted to make Benjamin laugh or something. Mm-hmm. And that's how I discovered this book. <laughs> then I right. sent him the book, and then he, like, devoured it and was like, can I, can I tell you everything that happened in here? I was like, okay. And he's like, and this is why it's connected to the second national conference. Right. Everyone at the conference has to get a copy of it. Right. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So that's, like, in we the were... grant. Like, it's, like, in there that we want to do that. Sorry. That was built into the proposal yeah. for the conference. So yeah. I remember staying at this hotel in Baltimore and like us going like outside for a walk and I was like, I have to bring this book. I was like harassing Raquel. I was like, listen to this passage, listen to this passage, listen to this passage. So it's yeah. Um 
And it's really resonating with people. A lot of people have said that they, they're really liking it. I'm excited that we're getting like geoscientists to just like read outside of the canon and like make a new canon and realize that there's a lot of different kinds of like scholarship and thinking that can be influential in the way that we want to shape our future. Beautiful. Thanks for this. This is really fun. Yeah. Thank you. Um, making it, the conference into like a big book club. Yeah. Is, is an enjoyable <laughs> um, way to start things off. You know, yeah. it's like a common ground that we can all yeah. come to the table with a tone set. Yeah. Um, with like a lot of really touching and personal ideas. Yeah. That are not, that combine science with our sense of being. 100%. And I think that, like, the, um, the fact that we're putting people in all of these, like, small groups to, like, do work together, some, one of the things that can be intimidating about that is, like, what if we don't have anything in common? And they, it was a very intentional choice to be, like, well, we'll provide one thing that, like, everyone can just have in common, because you hopefully have, like, at least heard of this book that people are reading and a lot of people have just started reading it or and you if you access. have no other place to start you can start there yeah or you have, yeah you have access to it and then like if you don't want to do anything or you like had a conversation you feel weird or you just eh, go to your own town and read on drown that's like doing <laughs> conference work so like it's also like interscalar in that it's just can facilitate all kinds all modes of participation and that's kind of what we meant when we were talking about that. And even, like, people who are participating virtually or not participating formally in the conference, like, you can all read Undrowned. Um, yeah, so that's cool. That was Dr. Raquel Bryant and Dr. Benjamin Keesling. The next morning, Dr. Tao Legoff, a scholar of literary theory and cultural history, gave the opening keynote titled Geology as Genealogy, Race, Stratigraphy, Empire. All three keynotes are available online to watch, and I encourage you to go watch them, as a few words of summary cannot do them justice. After Dr. Goff's keynote, I caught up with Dr. Mark Little, the current president of the Geological Society of America, to chat. My name is Mark Gabriel Little. I'm the current president of the Geological Society of America, um, and I'm also running a center at UNC Chapel Hill that focuses on economic development in economically distressed communities, primarily across the southeast, though we do think about geographies outside of that. So we're here at the Second National Conference. Um, can you maybe tell me about what are your goals with the Geological Society of America and how do you see those kind of coming together at this conference and, and how this might spark, um, you know, action? Right. So I guess the way I think about it with the role that I have is there's there's two parts to it. One is, what are my duties, and what are the things I want to get done, right? So the duties are stewarding the organization forward, and some of the things that I want to get done are things that I can sort of personally might have a focus on above and beyond that. Um, what's interesting about the conference, I think, is it meets both of those things. Um, so on the just basic duties, one of those is how do you support the organization, its members, um, and the growth of the organization. And if GSA wants to be around 100 years from now and be supporting the discovery of new knowledge, um, being stewards of the earth, which is part of the mission of the society, then 
I think that who's involved in the geosciences, who's asking questions, who's funded to do work, who's listened to, needs to continue to change and grow those voices. Um, and that's a big part of what this conference is about, um, how to build a future that is created by and formed by um, black, indigenous, Latino, other peoples who have excluded from that generative process, or at least our voices aren't um, listened to. Um, and so I think it's important for the survive, you know, if, if part of my job is for the organization to survive, um, then that's necessary. Um, for me personally, things that I want to focus on, I'm interested in, also align a lot with the conference. Um, there's lots of things I'm interested in, um, but I, you know, two I'm trying to focus on as much as I can. Um, one is related to um, how GSA engages with um, geoscientists outside of the United States, Australia, and Europe. Um, and what is what is that? What is the you know to use a what is the value proposition? Like how can um, GSA be of service to and connect with of these other geographies? Um, and it's hopefully having the organization think differently about what could membership mean and like, someone who may never step foot in the United States or never may never come to Denver, right? <laughs> um, how can they have a relationship with GSA and be benefited by it? And how can GSA, geosciences and knowledge broadly be benefited by, by them? Um, the other area that is of focus of interest is, um, I always don't know how to say this exactly, but whether it's GSA or the geosciences specifically, creating more conversation around the historic relationship between natural resource extraction and indigenous communities, uh, both in the United States but globally. Um, and, you know, these are, th this set of things is, is less operational and more about the sort of philosophical underpinnings of geoscience, of GSA, of the United States, of I mean, these bigger, bigger questions. Um, and the difficulty there can be Someone's saying, well, you know, that's all interesting, but, you know, I do this, right? I'm a seismologist, or I, you know, mm. do this. And so where, where to begin that conversation and how to, how to do it is one that I've been thinking through. Um, anyway, I, there's a lot there, but the conference also resonates in, in, with that, particularly this, the speaker this morning um, was talking about a lot of this a lot of those things. Um, and I guess the part of it I'm interested in is if you recognize the origin of something, the roots of something, that without it wouldn't have created, you know, the, the discipline, the work that you do would be, wouldn't exist or be quite different. Mm -hmm. If you recognize that that root is a problem, um, then what is your responsibility to at least engage with that idea. Um, if not, try to walk back yourself and what you do to that point and say, look, how would things be different? Um, like even what science means, um, the, 
one of the things that came up, I can't remember if it was in the first talk or a conversation I had, um, science and scientists like to talk about the work as if it is not connected to human beings, if it sort of exists um, separate um, and it's pure in some kind of way. And yes, you might have had this researcher who, um, you know, was very abusive, but, you know, the knowledge that they created exists. It just, you know, separate from them. Or as we're talking about this whole enterprise of um, displacing people and stealing bodies and land, yes, but this knowledge exists separate from that. It's mm -hmm. pure. Um, that is very much a the way that science positions itself, um, and I think that a lot of broad perspective, a broad group of people um, perceive it. Even, even um, I remember, uh, like the March for Science, um, that I understand the motivations for it, but it, it was like this um, this presupposition that well, you know, science isn't political. Science isn't um, everyone should you know everyone if you if you're a thinking thoughtful person you should just believe the science because it's pure mm -hmm. and it's clean it doesn't have this it's just the truth and it's there it becomes another doctor <laughs> right and that's uh i don't believe that that's true um and if you don't believe that's true then the origins and the context and the history of why and what we're doing then becomes really important and so that's the other thing like i said i'm trying to would like to try to engage with people on um, and uh, happy that the conference is firmly rooted in unrooting a lot of those things. Yeah, it's interesting that, like, especially as geologists, we focus on process a lot. And so to think that the process of how the science is made is separate from the product of it is an oversight, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Yeah. And <laughs> It's um, not an intentional oversight, perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, and, and, I, and a part of it also is being, I mean, I'm also president of the Geological Society of America, so I, I, I also, and in even the work that I, that I do, am very aware that people are, people are also, I mean, people are people. And so the attachments that people have to the way they've done things, the things they've done, what they've achieved is very important for, for us as you know, humans. And so, um, while I may, might disagree with someone, I also really want to respect what they're proud of and what they are thinking. Um, and so navigating that, like, how do you have those conversations in a way where you can actually engage somebody in a discussion about what you really want to engage them about without, you know, misinterpretation and, um, you know, the, similarly, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, people, people's lives are invested in the work that they do. And so if you critique the process, for example, you mentioned or these things, people take it personally because those things are personal to them. So you, you talked about, um, you, you gave a speech to, at our opening banquet mm -hmm. yesterday, um, and you talked about power. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something that doesn't come up a lot in, in scientific conversation. So I guess, um, I'm curious, you know, what avenues do you see to, you know, harness power to make those kinds of changes and, and redirect our field? Yeah. So, um, I've been, 
a little bit of sort of personal revelation. Maybe two two years ago. Again, I've been trying to think about like the connectivity between the work that I do and just as in power has really become clear. Like that's really what I'm working for, um, and. The easiest one, at least here, that people recognize is financial, right? Money. If you have more money, you can do more things. That's very clear. It's just, you know, it's very evident. Um, but there's other kinds of power. And I think that the first thing is that that money one is recognizing that it's there and clarifying it, that that's really fundamentally underpinning a lot of um, these power dynamics that currently exist. Um, you know, whether it's, for example, a an advisor and a student. Well, uh, the student is getting paid by the advisor, and they're bringing in the money, and so they have control, and they have power in that situation. Um, and, you know, if... Um, but, so, so it's, I mean, it's just, in just elucidating, like, that's where this power is coming from. There's someone who's paying somebody else they have. Um, and then the second piece is identifying other types of power and speaking them and, and, and having people exercise them and, and flex, so to speak, that. Um, and so that whether that's you know, graduate students unionizing, um, whether it's changing rules about um, what it means to have an advisor. So um, when I was in grad school, there was um, another a friend who had an advisor who, like their group was, it was like a, almost like prison, the way that they were controlled. And they had some of his graduate students spied on the other ones to make sure they were spending a certain number of hours in the lab. And this particular advisor um, liked to bring in students from the Middle East because their visas were so precarious that they could always use that, again, that power of deportation um, risk, right? Whereas from other other geographies, it was you know you could stay in the United States if you're you know change advisors, but with, with those folks you couldn't. Um, and so, I mean, it was, it, he was preying on this advisor was preying on on people to, to you know generate the research they wanted, bring in those research dollars, et cetera, kind of thing. Um, and so, I think there are ways of restructuring that in terms of you know how students interact with advisors, and because um, there's still still programs where you're brought in and like you're brought in to work with the person, and if that doesn't work out, you're just sort of flailing around. And um, I think there's also a role for organizations like GSA um, to support individual people through that journey, through if they are going to graduate school or in a professional career. Um, and so just kind of bring it to that. You know, one of the, we're, GSA is just starting something called the, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, Center for Professional Excellence in the Geosciences. And, um, GSA does a lot of different things, uh, mentoring and et cetera, for folks that are just finishing their education or about to finish their education through beginnings and middle of their career. But bringing those things together in a cohesive way, um, that's something that I think is pretty exciting that the GSA is trying to do. Which, um, again, it's like how do you identify people, bring resources to them in those situations where, you know, financially they're trying to get tenure. I mean, that that the way that's all structured is, is a very kind of tenuous thing, um, and so yeah. So yeah, I think there's lots of different ways that uh, GSA as an organization can build power for people who are disenfranchised, but also 
I think even more importantly, it's for just individuals to recognize that they do have power. And if there's two or three or five, ten of them, that's more power. And there's a lot that can happen. I mean, this conference itself, there's like three people saying, we want to do a thing. And talking to some folks and like, hey, you want to help us do this thing? And say like, sure, like, what do you need? And, and you know, and doing it, right? To the point where you have AGU, which is, you know, obviously financially has tremendous resources compared to these, um, Raquel, Rachel, and Ben. Um, but AGU recognizes the power that they have and it's like they want some of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, GSA wants some of it too. I mean, that's why we're sponsoring the conference because they're like, oh, these are three individuals that are quite powerful and connected to all of this things, this future that is, could be happening. And again, to the first question, 100 years from now, are these organizations relevant? Are they, are they part of something, part of creating things? And if they are, then they need to listen to and follow the people at this conference and other places that have ideas and connectivity and knowledge that the organizations don't have without them. That was Dr. Mark Little, president of the Geological Society of America. On Tuesday, the day began with a keynote titled, Are You Ready? by Dr. Tierra Moore, founder and CEO of Black and Marine Science. Later that day, I spoke with Dr. Edith Davis, who was hailed as the first black woman geophysicist in a 1984 article in Ebony Magazine. Hello, my name is Dr. Edith Davis, and I am a science education professor at Florida A&M University. I have a bachelor's from University of Miami in geology and mathematics with heavy concentration in physics, chemistry, and biology, and marine science. And I have a master's in geophysics from Stanford. And upon graduating from Stanford, unbeknownst to me, I was considered one one of the first African-American female geophysicists in the United States of America. I was featured in Ebony and, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, and then I went on to get my MBA from the University of Texas in Austin because people who have the money decide what I'm going to (laughs) do. And and then I eventually said, well, what kind of legacy... You know, what What am I doing for people who come after me, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I went and decided to get my terminal degree at Baylor University in uh, curriculum and instruction, science education and research is my emphasis. Yeah. That's it. Great. So here we are at the second national conference for justice and geoscience. Can you, we're on day Two or three, I guess, depending on how you measure it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what the conference has been like for you? You know, it's pretty awesome because I met Bromley, Dr. You know, Mm -hmm. I met him, the first African-American geophysicist, right? Um, At the end of his career, he was on the board of Exxon, I think, at the time. And, um, And so I got to meet him, and he was so warm and so... Um, kind to me as you know trying to help guide me through the beginning of my career and and I thought about him and what he had done for the generations like myself and others to make it possible for us to be here today and so this second conference is like even though it's 50 years later 
I think that this is a tipping point. I think that this is not going to be one of these conferences where we all talk, 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 and then at the end we're all going to get around the campfire and sing Kumbaya. I think that this conference is going to produce some phenomenal results. I'm just, I just pick it up, you know, in my spirit, and I'm, I'm thinking that um, that there's going to be actionable, actionable plans after this conference. And so, it's like everybody here is in sync and unison with the goal of. We need more um, minorities in the geosciences. And as you already know, we got the, the latest statistics I know of is 1.8% of, of minorities make up the geosciences. And that's not, that's not good. And so I have um, cooked up with old friends, Dr. David Patches and others, and um, renewed acquaintances and we're all on the same heart. We want to, wherever our part is, we want to do it wholeheartedly so that we can help the generations that follow us to be a success. And then they will open doors for the generations after them. I, was, um, I'm, I am very much into my, my latest proposal to NS, NSF, National Science Foundation, has been... I want this to be a transformational, transcultural, transgenerational project. And, and, and um, transgenerational, I think, is the key. It's the key for perpetuating anything that you want. If you can't get the generations, grandmother, the parents, you know, the aunts and uncles to buy in on it, you're not moving that needle. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just my thoughts on that. So how did you get into geophysics? It was interesting. Of course, you know, I was a geologist, right? Well, really, I was supposed to be Jacques Cousteau. I was going to be a miniature Jacques Cousteau, and I was going to travel the undersea world of Dr. Edith Davis. <laughs> but um, because at that time, that's, he was all over. Everybody was watching. And so I went off to University of Miami thinking I was going to be an ocean, a marine scientist, ocean archer. And I ran into Cesare Emiliani, who is um, a world-renowned paleontologist and the chair of the geology department. And I was the only, well, when I first got into the program, that first semester, there were three African Americans in the program. And at the end of the semester, it was only one. <laughs> Me. <laughs> And then I was, I matriculated, you know, all four years through the University of Miami geology department. And I was really nurtured and, you know, cherished by Dr. Cesare Emiliani, um, Dr. J.J. Stiff, and Dr. Fred Nagel. So I was it, but um, I got a lot of care. And um, so I got a United States Geologic Fellowship up in Woods Hole, Cape Cod, a very Big culture shock from a little little black girl and <laughs> from the country, and uh, and I was introduced to geophysics there. My project was um, I was um, actually mapping um, the banks off of 
um, withhold with geophysical um, tools and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, that's how I got into geophysics. And then I met a professor there, and he said, you ought to come to Caltech and, you know, do geophysics at Caltech. And I said, ah. I went back and told Dr. Emiliani, my mentor, and he said, no, you're going to Stanford. I said, well, no, I got a job offer from, at that time, Amoco Oil. And I was, you know, a little poor girl, never had a lot of money, you know. And, of course, I've been in school, as you think, as an undergraduate, you've been in there forever, right? Because you went all through <laughs> elementary, middle school, high school, and then you finish up and get your bachelor's in geology and mathematics for me. And so I was ready to have some money. And I, so I told Dr. Miliani, I said, Dr. Miliani, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm only going to apply to one school, Stanford. If I don't get in, I'm going to work. Now, you know, little did I know, I was already in Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Alan, uh, Dean Allen Cox, he was the dean at the time when I got there. Um, he and Dr. Miliani were very close friends. So they helped nurture my application, I guess, whatever you want to say. And once again, I got there, and I was the only one. Mm -hmm. But I was used to that. That's, I'm used to being the only one. I really enjoyed the talk today because it resonated. Mm -hmm. Oh, she hit almost every point. You got a program, but is your program programming? Mm -hmm. You know, um, another one that really resonated with me was she said, you know, you you want the people to come, but are you prepared the workspace for that per, you know person to come? Yeah. And and it's the whole, you know, and that's you know a lot of wasted resources. These really bright, shiny, not you know diamonds in the rough, are you know they get opportunity like the USGS or or whatever, and fellowships, and they get up there and the people don't even know how to handle them. They don't understand their culture. I was telling them at the time I was at the USGS and was home, you know, I'm from the country, but, you know, I was I was from Pensacola, Florida, too, so I spent most of my time in Pensacola, Florida, which is not the big city, but it's a little city. And then my summers I spent in Atmore, Alabama, where my family had by our family land and farmland. So, so I wasn't totally you know, but I was actually walking through the woods to my place, the lab that I worked every day. And not unbeknownst to me, there was a little fox that was actually tracking me. He knew about what time I was going to walk through the woods. And he just, and I said, mm, if you try to take me, you're going to see the hood come out of me. Cause we <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was a little bitty fox, man. But that made me think, I, man, it's just like little Red Riding Hood. But um, but the thing about it was is that you know I'm I'm an African American female and I'm all by myself. That's not good. That's not and you know and, and they didn't they didn't think it through. You know what I'm saying when you're. Um, but I was talking to um, one of my colleagues. She's with the Smithsonian, and she says that she always brings them in in pairs. And I think that's one of the smartest things to do. Because at least they have someone to bond with. Mm -hmm. And even if they don't get along, they're going to bond anyway. Because they're in an environment unknown and they're learning together how to navigate that situation. 
So yeah, that's how I got into geophysics, and um, and I'm I'm a geologist and a geophysicist. So how did you cope with that? How did you deal with being the only one in those situations? Well, I'm kind of an extrovert anyway, Mm -hmm. like people anyway, and I was prepped. I mean, I guess God had already knew he was going to do something different with me because when I was, okay, I was in the hood uh, going to Catholic school. Well, the Catholic school I went to, this was like the best. The, the wealthiest families and stuff sent their kids to school because it was a very good education. And so I was, in, I was the only little girl, African-American girl, in the fifth grade. And I never get a little boy named Michael Marshall. He came up to me. He was so kind to me. He had just come back from Germany. His father was an architect. I didn't even know what an architect meant. And um, he had just saw some castles in Germany. So it was wonderful, you know. And so then I had, um, my teacher was Miss Suggs. And um, she actually followed us from fifth, sixth to seventh grade. Mm -hmm. So that helped out a lot, too. Um, And so I was already kind of indoctrinated with other cultures other than my own Mm. at a young age, even though I was in the hood, (laughs) right? But when you went to school. School, I was in this this different, and and I learned at a very early age about the haves and have-nots. And most children don't see that until they get older. But going to the Catholic schools, you could see the haves, and then going to the project, you could see the have-nots. So it was, it was, you know, it made an impression. And then I went off to um, Pensacola Catholic High School. And my mother, you know, she was a nurse, nurse, like LPN. And my father was an orderly. So, and they had very strong work and educational ethics. Um, and so they sacrificed buying a car, their first car, so that I, my brother, and my my brother Levi and my brother Charles Williams, our, our last names were Williams at the time, could go to these, ex, you know, expensive schools. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, <clears throat> so when I got to Pensacola Catholic High School, which is still the one of the number one high schools in Florida and in Pensacola, Florida, in particular, I got there. You know, the Pensacola Catholic High was about ninety-nine percent white. But when I got to my class, everybody in the room was black and the teacher was black. So it was a very interesting experience. Then this beautiful white lady, she comes into the room, long black hair, and she points at me and she says, she doesn't belong in here. Well, I didn't even know about tracking. At the time, the educational system had something called tracking, right? Well, they kind of decide your destiny, mm. right? At a very young age. And so I was taken out of that room and I was put into another room. And this room, everybody was white, except for one young man. His name was Frank Burrell. And he was African-American and Japanese. Mm. And come to find out, it was the honors track. And so the trajectory of my life was already being shaped, right? And I was all, you know, I was already used to being in a predominantly white environment. And I was definitely in a predominantly white environment when I got to the University of Miami. 
um, the geology department. So, yeah, I, how did I handle that? I think I handled, you know, people are people, okay? After a while, at first, of course, you, you notice all the external stuff, right? But believe it or not, after you hang around with somebody for so long, you don't even know. You don't even notice. You don't even know. You're so, you're so into them as a person, yeah. right? You know? And so that's what I kind of, you know, that's why I think I, I have survived and thrived in the environment because I was really blessed and had people, you know, people cared about me. I had some people that didn't care for me either. You know, I went through some hard times like everybody else, but fortunately I had some people that cared about me. This might be a tough one, but do you have a favorite moment in your career that stands out? Maybe that's too, maybe that's too, uh, Ooh, favorite moment. You, you can take story. a moment and think about it. Favorite moment. Or a favorite story. Oh. Favorite place you've been. Oh man, that's a hard one, girl. You're good. <laughs> let me think, let me think, let me think. Okay. University of Miami. I'm getting close to my senior year. And um, they have an Upward Bound. It's called Upward Bound. Upward Bound program is, you know, bringing in minority students, um, giving them a college experience. And I uh, went up to Anna Price. And I said, oh, I would love to take the kids on a marine, you know, biology, marine geology, um, marine science uh, field trip. And I worked it out with the Rosa Steele School. And um, I took all the little whippersnappers. And it was phenomenal. It was wonderful. Walking along the beach, you know, doing a survey of the area talking about, you know, the interface between the estuaries and the ocean and the land. And it was just awesome. And, and I, that, was a, that was a bright, I guess it was a, a, a it kind of gave a sneak preview of my future. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize it, you know, because I was actually um, in a teaching mode, you know, but I was teaching what I loved. And I was impacting future generations. Mm. So I guess now you made me dig that up. That was deep. <laughs> That's a long time ago. That was Dr. Edith Davis. On Tuesday evening, there was a reception in the deep time hall of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Benjamin Kiesling gave a speech. A few words about tonight. Many of you are here because you are attending the second national conference on justice and geoscience. Others are joining us for this celebration. Tonight we celebrate the 50th anniversary of a visionary event organized by Dr. Randall Crawford for the first national conference. In 1972, a deeply motivated, expansive group of people articulated a shared vision that the study of this planet should reflect the people that live on it. In addition to being a geoscientist with a commitment to social justice and equity in higher education, Bromery was a musician. Another big part of his legacy was in funding and supporting the arts, and in particular, jazz music. As you dance and network tonight, I hope that you are inspired to learn more about Bromery's legacy and that you, in turn, will share it with others. 
What we are all part of is historic. 50 years from today, people will be talking about this, about tonight. In Bromery's final address to the First National Conference, he shared one outcome of his many efforts, that in 1972, UMass Amherst graduated more black students in a single year than it had cumulatively since its founding more than a century earlier. We are convinced, Bromery ends that address, that a few people who work together and seriously want to make changes can succeed. When I look around this room tonight, I see a lot of people who have spent the last two days working, building, dreaming together. People who are serious about making a change. Third, to my co-conveners, Dr. Raquel Bryant, Dr. Rachel Bernard, we did this. Four years ago, on an excursion to the archive, I unearthed a typewritten stack of paper describing the First National Conference. Opening that report felt less like turning pages and more like the earth itself opening up in front of me, so old but so new, so bright and so hot and so full of the possibility for a better future. It also broke me apart, and it took the love and the care of a whole community of people, so many of whom are in the room with us tonight, to envision a way forward. I took it straight to Raquel. I was deeply upset. If there are even so many people, powerful people, who tried to change geoscience, to change the world, what were we doing as graduate students? What could it really matter? Do you remember what you said to me? She said, I wouldn't see it like that. It doesn't mean we should stop fighting. It just means that we have no choice left but to be brave. And for the last four years, as this conference grew from the rough rain of an idea into this, I've lived in the echo of those words. So if you remember anything from tonight, let it be that 50 years ago, Randolph Bromery said, a few people who work together and seriously want to make changes can succeed. 50 years from tonight, what people will be saying is up to us. We have no choice left but to be brave. Thank you. Later that evening, I had a chat with Raquel Bryant about how she had started her research career in this very building. The sound quality of this recording isn't great because the Deep Time Hall is, perhaps fittingly, a very echoey place, and I had forgotten my professional recording equipment and resorted to using my phone. I still think this conversation is worth sharing, so I hope the background noise sets a mood, and if you have trouble understanding, a full transcript is available. So here we are at the Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. It's 9.20 at night and we're like drinking wine under like dinosaur bones. This yeah. is really cool and you made it happen. I did in so many ways um, and I'm proud of myself. Okay, the big thing I want to say is I get the people are like, oh, catch you guys, yeah, whatever, but it's really like, who's next? 
Yeah, I've heard several people be like, okay, now we're doing this every year? Is that what's happening? I think it's so interesting that that's the knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Because from my vantage point, I don't know if maybe the folks who organized the first national conference felt this way. I, I can't. I, I, like, I'm telling you that I'm ready to organize one in another 50 years because that's how much work went into it and how much of like me went into it. And... Yeah, no, I can't. Like, it's physically not possible. Like, no. Um, I want to talk about, I worked here. This is, like, my first science internship. In D.C.? Yeah. I I got an R.E.U., and I came to the Smithsonian. And that's the first time I've ever been here. And just, this is really great tonight, just be back in a place where... I, too, I remember being at Brown and just not understanding how you do research. Like, people would just say, like, yeah, I'm doing research with a professor. I was like, how? And they were like, oh, I just am. You know, I talk to them. How do you talk to them? What are you supposed to say? I want to do research? Like, what do you, like, in the subject line, do you say, like, hi, it's me? I want to, like, I was so confused. I didn't get it. And, like, even when people tried to help me, I felt like professors didn't take me seriously. They were like, oh, someone told you to say that in an advising meeting. You don't really mean it. And they, like, wouldn't respond and stuff. And so, when I got the REU, I was like, oh, okay, I guess, I really thought this, and it kind of made me sad, but at the same time, it's like, this is my opportunity, I was like, oh, of course, like, I'm only getting, like, a real shot to do this, not at my school, because they, like, aren't taking me seriously as doing this, so I can do it somewhere else, and it was like, the moment I could name drop somebody that everybody knew, was, oh, you're doing this and that, oh, you're doing that and that. But now that I'm telling the story, I realize the one person who did believe in me was, like, a postdoc who was cool, and I'm still connected with her now, which is really nice to professor. Anyway, it just feels like everyone's been... at Brown? Or yeah, she's here. a postdoc at Brown. Did she encourage you to apply to the REU, or what was her Yeah, she, she encouraged me... Well, I think I had already applied. It was, like, riding the high of applying. Yeah. And I applied for something else kind of on campus and contacted her about it. I, th- I think she taught, like, was going to teach a class that I thought was really cool and it didn't fit my schedule, probably because I had rehearsal or I don't know. And then I did a research project, like, got some award at Brown and did a project. And it was, like, she was as a postdoc there, but she wanted to use the state lifestyle lab, and I was a geology major, so, like, I knew the professor to ask. And then, like, once I could be in that room and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, like, in a couple weeks, I'm going to the Smithsonian for some internship to work with this other guy that, like, matters to you. And then it was like, oh, what are you doing for a senior thesis? And I was like, oh, so it's not you, like, email them and they respond back. It's like they ask you for some reason and you want, like, that's, I just remember feeling like, see, these are, I knew I needed to do something like that, like, get some other outside credibility because no one here sees me and how I'm portraying, like, being interested in geoscience. It's recognizing that as, like, oh, she wants to, like, do research, and she wants to publish papers, or she wants to be in the lab. Um, it was, like, somebody else credit or validation or, like, I don't know, just vouching for me, invoking them, and then all of a sudden I mattered in the science field. So it's cool to be back here and just, like, completely do something so different and, like, disruptive in a space that gave me the opportunity to like kind of almost join the club and now I'm back here reimagining what that is because a bunch of early career people and students are here making memories that like 
have never ever been made before in the Smithsonian in relationship to, you know, the deep time fossil hall relationship to the idea of a museum and some of like the colonial histories of it. And the idea of like a conference, like getting together and like celebrating it. So I don't know. We talked a lot about like location, geography matters, but even like this human built place for me like really matters to be back here doing something so different. Like Definitely something I did not ever think about or think was possible. If I was, like, a 19-year-old me here, like, in the basement in the paleo department, like, trying to understand what forums are, you'd be told, bro, it's not, and it's not even that long ago. It's not even a decade, right? It was 2013. How old are you? I just turned 29. 29. Okay, so it was 10 years ago. That's not that long. Like, oh my god! Okay, and that's when the Jonas Brothers broke up. That was a tough year. I saw them. I took like the the metro from DC all the way out to Summer, Virginia, and then this like seventy dollar taxi ride just to see the Jonas Brothers. And they broke up a couple months after. So thank God I saw. Them. Anyway, um, good concept to have. Yeah, yeah. So I like things that are full circle because it's like revolution. Right? Yeah. Like, that word means a lot of things, but also means, like, do it again, but it also means, you know, that, so. Yes! <laughs> Love it. And there's one, tomorrow's, like, I hope tomorrow's continuation of the celebration. I'm excited for the showcase. I hope people really understood what my invitation was. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it'll be really cool, because I want to, I said this some before, I should say this too. I don't do a lot of experiments like, with the type of geoscience I do. That's what I said when I called out that white girl. Oh, my God. I said that. I shared this with her. So, you know what? There she goes. She helped me think about this because I, I shared this with her. I just really thought about it. I don't really do a lot of experiments, like, with what I do, like, just looking at fossil assemblages. I'm, like, integrating, making meaning from shit that's already been there. It's not like I'm trying to, like, create new conditions and see what happens after. And I got to do that here. This was, like, one of my grand big experiment from, like, I don't know, being in high school and being, like, why am I the only person from my bus in my honors bus? Like, that's weird. Why is that what's happening? And then going to college and, like, being in an independent study with a bunch of my friends, some of which were here tonight, looking at, like, race and gender in science because we were about to get our PhDs and we were, like, wait, let's, like, study it before we go so we, like, can be kind of ready to deal with how hard it's going to be on those axes, and then I got to UMass and met, okay, there could be a whole other conversation about what being at UMass Amherst did for me in terms of, like, there being a union and labor being such a big part of the campus culture because of the scholarship that goes there, but the actions that have gone there, that completely changed what I think I'm supposed to do in higher education. Like, it's not just enough for me anymore to be a good educator or a really good scientist, like a researcher, but like I'm a role model on the campus. It doesn't matter. Like I'm a professor. Like that means something to a lot of people. If you're a professor, you're a PhD. What? I'm doing an interview. I'm about to be done. I'm so glad I found you. I was on the Um, a lot of people care about me, and they thought I got lost. Oh. Um. Also. I feel like I got cut off, but I have a other thing I want to say. I'm just excited that this is how I'm starting. Like, I did this 
this is where I am, like, finishing my postdoc, and I'm about to start what it means for me to be a professor, and I think that I'm ready to figure out what that means for what kind of science I'm going to do and what kind of class I'm going to teach, but also, like, what I'm going to take in academia and what I'm not. Like, I, <laughs> I know that, like, I can do a lot of things, and so I'm not, my whole imaginary is not scaffolded, like, it's not... My whole thinking about the future is not built on being a turning professor, for example. Like, if that happens, it happens, whatever. But right now, I'm just trying to, like, study the earth, I don't know, and make everything better for my friends and the people I'm, like, on my adventure with. Yeah. Um, are there any other, like, logistical questions? No. Um, we're doing a little interview, but we're, like, literally wrapping up, so it's not a good timing if you stick around. <laughs> You have, um, I don't know, I rambled a lot. You gave me a lot. That's okay. really great. I had my own questions for myself, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. On Wednesday, the last day of the conference, Nayeli Kobo, a community activist and winner of the 2022 Goldman Environmental Prize, delivered the final keynote, Advancing the Climate Movement Through Storytelling. Afterwards, I spoke with Dr. Rachel Bernard. I'm uh, Rachel Bernard. I'm a, an assistant professor of geology at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. So here we are at the second national conference for justice and geoscience. We're at the end of it here, and you helped organize it. Um, and from my experience, the paper you wrote in 2018 instigated a lot of conversations about the diversity problem in geoscience, right? Um, so maybe can you tell me about how you ended up here convening this conference, about your journey to that? Yeah, so it kind of does um, start with that paper. Um, that's kind of how I met Raquel and Benjamin, um, the other co-conveners. So. Um, before I wrote that 2018 paper with uh, Emily Cooperdoc, my friend from grad school, I wrote a blog post because I had kind of been, I had this NSF uh, data that I had kind of obtained and was kind of just sitting on my computer and um, I decided eventually to like look at the data and I thought it was really interesting so I wrote a blog post just kind of showing the trends that I saw. Um, and that was for the UT Austin grad student blog, Science Y'all, that um, me and Emily actually co-founded. Um, but yeah, so I kind of was present. I think I had a presentation either on the paper or about the data in the blog post before the paper came out. And that's, that was a diversity session at the AGU uh, fall meeting where I was presenting in the same session as Raquel and Benjamin. They were presenting on a... Um, a speaker series that they had developed at UMass Amherst and they were PhD students so that's how we met and then kind of just stayed in touch um, coincidentally I moved to Amherst where they were finishing up their PhDs um, so we kind of continued to be in contact and so when they um, Raquel and Benjamin came up with this idea or this vision for this conference and said that they were going to be writing an NSF proposal to get it funded. They asked me if I wanted to kind of hop on as a third PI, and I said, yeah. So, and it's been great. I've learned so much from Raquel and Benjamin. I think if this conference had been planned just by me, it would be way, it would be so boring. It would just be like a clone of 
the AG fall meeting with speakers and Q&As, it would be not as dynamic and creative as it's become. So I just think it's been great, but the kind of the vision for the conference is like all them. They're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> They're amazing, although I'm sure... I, I I'm I feel like you're downplaying your role. I mean, I'm sure I helped. I you know I took on different parts of the conference, but I think what makes what's made this conference so special is how different it is from every other conference I've ever been to, and like that's them and Raquel in particular, kind of taking charge of the programming. Yeah, has been amazing. Can you tell me about the themes of the conference and how those have come up for you over the last four days? Um, yeah, I think the th so the themes of the conference are archival, so kind of looking at the past, um, seeing what's been done, urgent, what needs to be done now, and how can we get justice for geosciences of color now, urgently and uh, imaginary, so how can we imagine a different future? And I think what I've been happiest to see at this conference is that a lot of um, diversity sessions or kind of spaces where people have talked about diversity in geosciences are very doom and gloom. So like people bringing up my paper and looking at the past or the present and saying like, look at all these problems we have. But I think this conference is, has been so you know, there have been tense conversations that have been had, but overall it has felt like a very um, joyful space where we can celebrate the successes we have had in the past and also try to, like, imagine what could be. And I think a big part of that is having so many young people, so many students here, and I think, like, a third of the people that were accepted to the conference were students, mostly graduate students. So it's just been... And the, the fact that it's so interdisciplinary, it just, I think it's, um, I don't know, it feels very hopeful. Um, and it's just great to see all these people that are in geology or at least interested in learning about the earth and thinking about ways that earth science can better serve society. It's interesting that you say that about, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom around this conversation, and I see a parallel with the science of, like, climate science, right? And, like, how do we... It can feel immobilizing, but it's so... I don't know. Yeah. Catastrophic feeling. Um, well, like, today, today's keynote was a really great example. Like, that was a really powerful talk um, and it was really sad at points people were like crying and some people like wiping their eyes it's very sad but I mean there's nothing more hopeful than seeing someone who is 20 and even you know that has made actual change in like not just a small town but in LA like has really led some real change it makes you it shows that so much is possible and that even though the pe people in the geosciences people of color and people that are kind of really passionate about DEI even though that might be a minority it's like you could have real crazy serious change um, 
with not that many people. <laughs> and here we've been in rooms with, it gives you a chance to see all the people who are on board with that mission. Yeah, I was talking with some people about how they, how much they love this conference and how even at the end of the first day, we had covered so much because we didn't have to waste our time convincing half the people in the room why diversity is important. It's like we didn't have to go and say, like, there's this thing called implicit bias, and it's actually important that um, the geosciences are diverse. Like, everyone that's here already knows that, so we can just put that aside and, like, get down to business. Um, so in that way, it's been like, really awesome, too, and I feel like it's been a really productive two and a half days. That was Dr. Rachel Bernard. To finish out the podcast, we're going to play a clip from the jam session at the end of the conference. Enjoy.
Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Lab Talk with Laura. As a reminder, you can watch videos of the three keynote talks from the Second National Conference online at agu.org. You can find a full transcript of this podcast online at soundcloud.com slash labtalkwithlaura. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. Thank you for listening. Believe it or not, this is supposed to be over now. <laughs>